Let's turn in our Bibles this evening to the passage we have just read. We'll be, I'll just be reading the one verse since our brother has read the context to us. First Timothy, I'm sorry, First Peter, First Peter, chapter three and verse seven. Having addressed the wives, the Christian wives of the congregations to which he was writing, Peter now turns to write to men. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, those wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's once again ask for God's help in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Father, we do again come to you and we thank you that we are able to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, our great pattern, our great example. We are his disciples and we are seeking to follow in his ways. And we pray that you would illumine our understanding, sensitize our consciences, show us, Lord, where we need to improve, to be more like our Savior, and to bring glory and honor to your name and power to the gospel we proclaim. So we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're looking today, this evening, at what I call guidance for godly husbands. And uh, this has a, uh, a great impact upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you, you see in the verse that I have read to you, it's, he's not, Peter is not directly addressing the gospel, not directly, but this is something that Peter would have us to understand does impact the gospel, and it does impact the witness that we have. You go all the way back into chapter 2, um, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and there Peter, Peter helps us to understand how this particular issue of our godly husbandry, if I can use that word, that, that word is actually used for planting, but uh, we'll use it for the duties of husbands. Peter tells us how this has an impact upon the gospel because First uh, Peter 2, 11 and 12 is the umbrella text over all of this section where he speaks about our uh civil responsibilities, our vocational responsibilities, etc., and our familial responsibilities, or uh, to use a fancier word, if you want a, a nice 50-cent word, our connubial responsibilities, responsibilities as husbands and wives. And this is what Peter says there. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly what lusts which wage war against the soul. This is the impact of the issues upon our souls, our stability, our strength. That's one side. The second side, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, be, be, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so P Peter is saying that all the things that we are considering from uh, 2.12 on to 3.7 and following have an impact upon our testimony 
in the gospel. Modern evangelicals are always very concerned with witnessing, with communicating the gospel message. How can we witness most effectively? How can we make the best use of our hours and days so that we will be used by God to teach, to reach those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are ready to perish eternally? How can we best present the gospel? How can we deal with sinners so that the gospel will attract their attention and admiration? Although these questions are often answered in a wrong way, they are nevertheless the concern of all healthy Christians. Peter is concerned with our testimony and our gospel effectiveness, and that's why he's bringing us to the passages. That's one of the reasons why he's bringing us to the, to the issues that are here. We cannot afford to ignore them or push them aside. They are apostolic directions for our life and testimony. Now, we're dealing with uh, guidance for godly husbands. And I know uh, one of the thoughts that will come into people's minds uh, is how you doing, Mr. Duana? How are you as a, as a husband? You're about to preach on husbands. Well, I have two, two things to say about that. And I want, to, I want to be clear about it. Number one, I, like every other man, under the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, am imperfect. I don't pretend to be perfect. John says in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But that does not disqualify me from declaring the word of God. I don't pretend to be perfect. However, I do pretend, I do profess to be a real example. I do profess to be a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The things that I say this evening to husbands, I say as a husband with a good conscience. So I want you to know that up front. I'm not apologizing for preaching on husbands I don't profess to be perfect, but I do profess to be real. And the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed, that's the second thing I want to say, the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed our prime example. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 5, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Even though Peter doesn't bring that emphasis in here, it is the emphasis of the Bible that godly husbands are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, our wives, my wife, your wife, ought to be able to say, my husband is a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is seeking to image forth Jesus Christ in our home and in his life. That's what they ought to be able to say. So I don't, I don't, I'm not really worried about what June will say to me on the ride home. Uh, she will have something to say one way or another, but I'm not I'm not afraid of what she will say because I speak out of a conscientiousness of what I have endeavored to be as her husband. So, Peter is addressing these Christian husbands. And it's a, a, peculiar, uh, a peculiar section of 1 Peter. You can compare 1 Peter with the teaching of the Apostle Paul and you see some similarities uh, 
Paul addresses husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. He addresses children. He addresses uh, slaves and masters in Ephesians and Colossians. He addresses these various uh, uh, roles and responsibilities. Uh, Peter doesn't address all the same things, and he addresses some things that Paul does not. And it has to do with the culture and with the needs of the congregations that Peter is writing to, as opposed to those that Paul wrote to. Um, in this section, Peter does not, like Paul, exhort masters. Probably there were fewer masters in those congregations. He doesn't uh, address uh, other things that Paul addresses. He uh, he addresses Christian husbands of believing wives. He doesn't talk about Christian husbands who have unbelieving wives, probably because there are far fewer of those in the churches that he addressed. But will I will say some things about a Christian husband and his relationship to his unconverted wife. Peter is concerned to address the believers of Christian wives. That's, that's what he is dealing with in 1 Peter 3.7. So what Peter does here is he shows Christian husbands two duties and a motive. Two duties and a motive. So I don't, won't try and smooth it out. We're going to address the duties, one and two, and then the motive in the third place. First of all, the first responsibility of a Christian husband is the sensitive, thoughtful fulfillment of his normal marital duties. Peter is urging Christian husbands to the sensitive, thoughtful fulfillment of his normal marital duties. And one of the commentators, I think it was John Brown in his commentary, uh, he calls them connubial duties, which is a very fancy name for the same fundamental like marital responsibilities. And uh, in the first place, the duties are summed up in the one command to dwell together with their wives. Again, that's right there in the text. Husbands dwell with them according to knowledge and, and what the Apostle Paul does. And this is what's nice about connubial uh, as opposed to marital. Connubial starts with a prefix con, which means with, and nubial, marriage. So it's with marriage. It's dwelling together. Paul Peter uses a, a word uh, uh, which has that kind of a structure to it. Sun uh, oiketo. Dwell together with. That's what Peter says to these Christian men. Dwell with their wives. What there was interesting is not in the text. Uh, it's in there. Uh, if you, you might have a translation that has italics with their wives, but that's what Peter is, is talking about. Uh, obviously, even though he doesn't mention the wife in verse 7 up front, that's what Peter is speaking about. The distinctive duties of husbands in relation to their wives. And that is to dwell together. To dwell together. Now that might seem fairly obvious to you. Uh, uh, let me underscore the point that there are cultures 
in which a husband's dwelling in the same residence in his wife is not entirely common. There are people who live in other places that do not regard it their responsibility to live in the same house with their wife, where the wife may live in one country and the husband for education or for a vocational advancement lives in a different country so that they're not dwelling together in the same house. I don't know if that's what Peter has in mind here, but he definitely states that they are to live in the same residence with interaction, good influence, and affectionate harmony. That's what ought to characterize the life of a Christian man with a Christian woman. They have to live in the same place with interaction so that the man comes home and his wife asks him, Honey, how was your day? What happened today at work? And the guy doesn't just sit there like a lump on a log and say, oh, it's okay. But he speaks to his wife about the issues that he faces and they have this intimate interaction and there's this good influence. The husband seeks to be a good spiritual guide to his wife by opening up the Bible and reading the word of God and instructing his wife there is to be good influence, and there is to be affectionate harmony. They're seeking to aim to glorify God together. And so there ought to be affectionate harmony. It's assumed, again, that in this, that uh, the husband has applied a place to live. That's his responsibility. My wife and I were talking this week about a young man who has started a courtship relationship with a young woman. And he doesn't make enough money to own his own residence. He has to live with his, his, his parents. And he's not really in a position where he can offer to the young lady uh, to marry her because he doesn't make enough money to support her. He doesn't have enough money where he can even, well, you know how expensive it is to rent in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. It's expensive to rent in New Jersey, just about any place you go. Uh, so a, a man is supposed to be supplying a place to live. Assumed is the fact that he is supplying the financial needs. Now, Peter doesn't mention that, but you know that Paul does. Paul says, if any man does not provide for his own, he is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. So a man should not be thinking, and I know this, this might sound strange to some of you, there are men who think this way. Well, it's okay because when I marry her, I'll just send her out to work. She can make more than me. Now, that may be a fact, but it's not the reason why he marries a woman so that he can tap into her resources. That's not the point. The fact is that it is his responsibility to provide for their financial needs. That is taught in the Bible. His responsibility is to be the head of the home is also implied it's implied in the command of women to submit to their own husbands. So can you imagine a woman trying, taking this to heart? I know, I know the, the feminists are out there and they're not interested in submitting to their own husband. Imagine a woman who is. She says, I want my husband to lead. It's interesting. I worked for a feminist in my last position at the bank. And uh, I, knew, I knew the way she thought. I Watched her, I listened to her, and I said, uh, but Mimi was her name. She probably won't listen to this. <laughs> but but Mimi, 
I said, you want a man to lead, don't you? She said, absolutely. It's frustrating for a woman who wants the relationship to be what it ought to be, and then he won't give her any leading, any guidance. He sits back and, you know, okay, this can happen, that can happen. That's not the way a Christian husband lives. He is, in, he is supposed to give direction to their marriage. And in a Christian marriage, that is vitally important. So this is one of the issues that Peter makes here that the husband, as the responsible head of the home, is giving his wife a platform in which she can count on direction from him. That doesn't mean she never, she never has input. As a matter of fact, a wise man will listen to his wife. And if, uh, if it's especially wise, he will repeat back to her what she says to him so that she can be sure that he understands what she has heard and what she has said. See, that's part of this uh, atmosphere of a home living, living together, providing, uh, providing guidance and direction for what they are seeking to accomplish. So here in verse seven, while Peter makes a simple uh, obligation known that they that he is to live together with her. He, he packs all of this into that very phrase. The, the word that he uses there, which I mentioned a bit, a bit ago, sunoketo, is not a very common word. Um, it, it's more frequently used of spiritual realities. It is used, in, and I'm not going to turn there for time's sake. It is used in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 and 13, where Paul deals with marriages between people, one of whom is converted and one is not. And I'm assuming that one, they were both unconverted when they married, and then one of them became converted. And so Paul says to the Christian husband of an unconverted woman that he is to, if she, is, if she consents to live together, that's the word, to live together, the idea is live together in as harmonious a relationship as possible. That's the way it should be between a Christian man and an unconverted woman. How much more? between a converted man and a converted woman, that they are to dwell together in a harmonious manner. So this is the way, uh, to give some illustration, this is the way God dwells with his people. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? That's that word sunoikeo again. Dwell together. God dwells with his people. What kind of a relationship is that? That's where God guides, and that's where God provides, and that's where God helps his people to do his will. This is not the relationship of a piece of furniture to the surroundings. The, the husband is not a piece of furniture, and the wife is not a piece of furniture. They don't both happen to stand in the same area of the living room. No, they dwell together in a harmonious living relationship. That's what the word means. God has a relationship of interaction, influence, and harmony with his people. And this is the way it's supposed to be in the Christian home. Secondly, still under my first heading, this responsibility, 
with the wife, the manner in which he is to live with his wife. He's to dwell with his wife. The second thing Peter says about it, it's according to knowledge. According to knowledge. Um, what does it have here in our text? It says, uh, uh, it says according to knowledge. Uh, what some translations have in an understanding way. It's, a, it's similar to directions you might find when you're putting together uh, something. If you're building something and you have a blueprint and it says according to specifications. If you have to cut a board, if you're doing, a, if you're doing a, a, I don't know how many women sew anymore with a pattern. You know, it tells you to follow the pattern. Do it this way, cut it to this size. That's, that's this idea according to your specifications. The, Christian's hus the Christian husband's life with his wife is to be regulated by knowledge. He's to live with her according to knowledge. And you say, very, re very reasonable. Knowledge of what? What kind of knowledge is this that regulates the Christian marriage? And particularly, the responsibilities of our Christian husband. Well, first of all, you consider what, they, what the scripture says about the relationship, and this gives us our clues, of the general nature of women. The general nature of women. Peter gives us an example uh, in the previous verses. He underscores the fact that women love to beautify. Uh, why did God say in Genesis chapter 2 that it's not good for the man to be alone? We'll just go into... Uh, the home, uh, the apartment of a single man. And you see that it's not good. He doesn't know how to beautify. He doesn't know how to arrange. He's not an interior decorator unless God has put him together differently than most men. Interestingly, it reminds me of the question the pastor uh, proposed this morning. He didn't uh, propose it the way I thought he might, but uh, he said, why does, why, does, why, why does James talk about the a male, a male looking at his natural face in a mirror. I have the answer to that. Uh, uh, when men look in a mirror and they see something out of place, they forget. A woman looks in the mirror and sees something out of place and she never forgets. Right? If she happens, if she happens to see something askew with her makeup or with her hair and she doesn't have time to fix it, all the way down the street, all the way to the shopping mall, she's thinking about what's out of place. She never forgets what she sees in the mirror. Men forget what they see in the mirror. Generally speaking, as a general rule, this is the general nature of women. And husbands ought to remember this about their wives. They love to beautify things. They love to organize things. They like to see everything in order. My wife is an excellent example of this. I have a desk. I have things on my desk. They may not be the way June would order them. So she comes. She loves to sit with me at my desk and we can enjoy time together. And she arranges, rearranges everything on my desk. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. But that's the general nature of women. And if you're a man married to a Christian woman, and even if you're married to a non-Christian woman, you need to remember this about the nature of women. They love to 
to beautify. Second thing about the, the nature of women, they more easily become insecure. Now, do we men sometimes become insecure? Yes, we do. But women are more prone, and it affects them, generally speaking, more deeply. Peter was a married man. He studied and observed. He had uh, a mother-in-law in his home, whom Jesus healed when she was sick. So you see, Peter knew what it was not only to live with a wife, but to live with a mother-in-law. So he had the effect of two generations of women. And let me, let me say this especially to you who are young men and unmarried, what you need to understand about women is this. A woman grows more like her mother over time, not less. You can take her mother, you can take her out of her mother's home, but you can take her mother out of her. She's going to be more and more. Sense of humor, a sense of aesthetics, the way you do things, this is what women are like. So, you want, to, you want to look at, if you're interested in a woman, look at her mother and ask yourself, can I appreciate that sense of humor? Can I appreciate those aesthetics that they have, the way they like to do things? Because you're going to be facing that the rest of your married life. Well, women become easily, more easily become insecure, as Peter understood. So that's one thing. A man needs to understand the general nature of women. They love to beautify, they more easily become insecure. And then a man needs to understand his particular wife. Just as the wife is told that she must submit to her own husband, there may be things that other husbands do that she wishes her husband was like, but he's not. And so she submits to her own husband. Similarly, a man has to live with his own wife according to knowledge. Women differ, Pastor Martin used to say, uh, in preaching and counseling. You're not married to women. You're married to a woman. And that's the woman you must dwell with according to knowledge. Womanly characteristics come out in different ways. I was listening to Del Ralph Davis uh, preaching on this subject. And he said, if somebody tells you to, under, to try to understand your wife, he says, mm, it's a deep abyss. It's not going to be easy. Don't expect it to be easy. And, and really, uh, I speak from experience, women like to surprise men by doing things they never anticipated. That was Dale Ralph Davis' uh, experience, and I'm not going to repeat the funny story that I repeated to Sister Marcel this afternoon. Again, uh, you need to know your particular wife as a Christian husband, because women differ, and that makes our job all the more interesting and challenging. Christian husbands seek to know them, know them, thoughtfully live with them, regulated by knowledge. For example, seek appropriate channels for their aesthetic sensibilities. Your wife has aesthetic sensibilities, and it's your wisdom, as long as they are not inherently sinful, to give channels for it. 
your, 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 your aim as a Christian husband is to develop all of the gifts and talents of your wife so that she flowers. That's what that's the way Paul's speaking in Ephesians chapter 5, that a man nourishes and cherishes his wife as his own body so that she blossoms. Her gifts are accelerated and developed. And then you need to seek to make sure that she feels secure. I won't mention a name, but I had a friendship with a younger man. And he told me one time that he gave his wife, and he, 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 he was not, well, as sensitive as he should have been. He gave his wife the impression that he didn't need her. He told me that he, he rarely kissed her. And I told him, mister, you need to make sure your wife knows that you love her. There's no rival. You need her. You want her. A woman whose husband doesn't make her feel loved, doesn't, with the many, many ways that he can express it, make her say, you are the one. You're the only one. I need you. I think some men think this is weakness. I don't think it is. I think it's strength for a man to be able to tell his wife without fear that his macho image is going to be damaged. I love you and I need you and I want you. You see, the fact that a woman can feel very insecure is to be counterbalanced by the man's clear signals in many ways that he loves her and he wants her make her feel secure. She should know without a shadow of a doubt that she is his one and only. And then P Peter gives another declaration about women. A man's knowledge about his wife, well, not to neglect the fact that she's a feminine being. She's a feminine being. Now, that's obvious. I remember a, a commercial where uh, picture Adam and Eve, and Eve says, I'm different, Adam. And he says, I'm not blind, Eve. Yeah, they are different. They're certainly different. She's a feminine being. Now, I'm, I made the big mistake many years ago when we lived in a different place, and I had a couch, and I had to take the couch downstairs. And I didn't call my sons. I called my wife. And I took one end of the couch, and I had to go down a narrow set of stairs, and I said, okay, June, you hold on to that end. I'll, I'll take this. And she said, you know, I, I can't do it. I should have known before even calling her that the task was too big for her. She was not strong enough to accomplish that task. I couldn't, I couldn't make her do that. I felt, well, I feel stupid that I would have tried to make June lift a couch like a man and take it down a set of stairs with me. But that's what we need to understand about our wives. And Peter puts it this way. She is a weaker vessel, a weaker vessel. And therefore he is to live with her in this understanding that she has limitations as a woman. Now, um, 
I, I hope that none of the women here will get upset with me by I, when I say that about a woman. There are various aspects of her humanity which are not like a man's humanity. Now, she can bear pains that men can be, bear. I know women, some women, when they get in a huff, they say, well, try bearing a child. Well, thank you, no. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. I, I understand the difference between men and women. And, and she bears more pain in childbirth than most men feel outside of capital punishment. But the Bible does say this about the woman. You, you, you think about your wife and you realize, uh, give her honor a, uh, as, uh, to the wife as unto a weaker vessel. Though She's a weaker vessel. Now, that doesn't mean that the man is strong. He's just not as weak. That's, that's uh, the, 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 the point. According to our Bible, a man is a weak vessel. If you look over at uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that's, that's probably the best text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. Paul's talking about himself as a minister. And he says, we have this treasure, the gospel treasure, in earthen vessels, clay vessels, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Uh, when, when people have a, be a beautiful piece of jewelry, maybe uh, fine china, they take a nice, beautiful corner ch uh, closet, a china closet, and they put it in a beautiful setting so that people will say, well, that, that closet is beautiful and the vase is beautiful. That's not what God does. God says, I want all the glory to be in the message, in the Savior. And so he puts his treasures in clay pots so that the glory may not be to the vessel, but to the gospel. Men are clay pots. Women are are more frail. They have an ex accentuated weakness. Peter is accentuating human frailty, and it is highlighted in the woman. It's constitutional. Generally speaking, pound for pound, a man is stronger. Often, intellectually, and especially in intuition, a woman has intuitions, saying, but that doesn't make her wiser. Actually, we took a, an online test one time that measured uh, IQ. And June and I got the exact same score, though not the exact same answers. Some answers she got that I did not. But, uh, but, there, but there it is. The Apostle Paul makes this point about women. Why women can't be pastors. Why women can't be teachers, and that's the same way that a man can. And Paul says, this is the nature of women. So, whether you like it or not, that's what God says. And often, uh, women try. Some, some women are very successful at careers. We have women like that in the Bible. You have the Proverbs 31 woman who buys a field and sells it, who makes uh, belt for the tradesmen. She is an entrepreneur. And there is a Lydia, seller of purple. I, I understand all of that. But the problem with our culture is that our culture has divorced the woman from the home. And it causes many, many problems. I, 
I have often said I haven't, I'm haven't. i thankful to God that June has not had to work in the 50 years we've been married. I'm thankful because I know what the workplace is like. I know the temptations. I know the frustrations. And I'm grateful that my wife doesn't have to do that. I think uh, we're already seeing the disintegration of the family in our society because our culture is separating the woman from her home. So this is my first point. What, what's God's guidance? What's Peter's guidance for the godly husband? There is a sensitive, thoughtful fulfillment of his normal marital or connubial duties. Secondly, there is a peculiar esteem a Christian husband ought to convey to his believing wife. A, a peculiar esteem a Christian husband ought to be ought to convey to his believing wife because Peter tells her, tells the husband, giving her honor, giving her honor. Now, honor is something that starts in the heart. Honor is a, is a motive of the heart. And you give honor starting with the heart, the way you think about someone. You know, you, you have a pastor who I regard as my dear friend. The Bible tells us that we're to give him honor. That honor starts in the way you think about them. It starts in the heart. And the honor a man gives to his wife starts in the heart. That doesn't mean it's invisible. It's not. It's not just mentally. It's actually. He gives her honor. He gives her honor. That she can hear and feel and bask in. A woman ought to be able to say, I am thankful for the honor my husband shows me. She gives him honor in her address and in her submission. When a woman is in good spiritual health and she has a husband whom she trusts, she can give her husband honor in the way that she addresses her. You remember what? Peter says, called, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I don't know if I said so, but there was a man who preached about this at Trinity many years ago. And he said, I, I told her to say, aye, aye. And she said, aye, aye, aye. <laughs> that was her way of, of uh, fulfilling and telling him what, he really, what she really thought about, about, uh, about that. But uh, she did give him honor. She was a good, she's a good wife, as long as I knew her. But uh, she is supposed to give her husband honor, and he is supposed to give her honor. Honor with appropriate marks of respect. And that means, I can say it with a good conscience, never forget her birthday. Never forget her anniversary. 51 years this year. I never miss June's birthday. I have never missed her anniversary. So I can speak with a good conscience here, and she can verify it. That's how you respect someone. There was a man in, in the Manhattan church. He never forgot his mother's birthday. I don't know if he ever forgot his wife's birthday, but I know he never forgot his mother's birthday. He dressed differently on his mother's birthday when he came to church. He shaved differently when he came to church the, on his mother's birthday. That was a mark of respect. Now, this has to do, again, with the tone of voice, 
the manner in which he speaks to her, commending her to others, to her family, her children, in private and public. You remember the woman of Proverbs 31. She's an excellent woman. What does her husband do? Her husband rises up and blesses her and says, many virgins have done nobly, but you excel them all. This is the manner in which a man honors his wife. He makes her to know her value, his appreciation, his warm love. But there's one specific fact that Peter has in mind, which is the basis of this kind of honor. And it is the fact of her true participation in salvation in Jesus Christ. A man who is married to a Christian woman has a peculiar responsibility to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's an heir. She has an inheritance. That inheritance she's going to receive at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in its fullness, right? In its fullness. Then she's going to hear what every Christian man will hear. Come blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. What a motive to be a Christian. To know that before all of the moral universe, among the myriads of angels, Christians are going to stand with Christ with a full sense of their unworthiness and hear those words, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, eternal life, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. You value that as a Christian man? Well, that means that you ought to honor your Christian wife because she is, whatever else you may think about her, a fellow heir of the grace of life. And so that will affect the way you speak to her, the way you address her, the way you extend grace where grace is necessary. And so this is one of the ways in which a Christian man honors his wife. A Christian wife, again, should have a good sense of what you Christian men think of her spiritually. She ought to know. Ought to be no doubt in her mind. So he is to accord her the dignity he accords to other believers. He shouldn't be, he shouldn't be belittling his wife. She has weakness. We have weakness. And he ought to address her in a proper manner. I put this in my notes in 1998. I preached on this. It's easier to belittle a Christian wife than it is to belittle most other Christians. And a Christian man ought to feel deeply grieved if that's the way he treats his wife. So, we have... <clears throat> A sensitive, thoughtful fulfillment of his normal connubial duties. The peculiar esteem a Christian husband ought to convey to his believing wife. Third point this evening, the motives to this duty. Peter gives us one powerful motive. Now, there are a lot of motives. The motive of having a good testimony in your family and in your extended family. Um, 
this was a peculiar thing in our marriage early on. I was converted. My wife, my mother was not. June was converted. Her parents were. My mother uh, did what most mothers do. If there's something she sees in her son, he, she doesn't like, she blames it on the wife. Frank would never do that. He would never cross my will. He would never do things differently than I thought he should do. June must be the one pushing him in this direction, you see. So um, that, was, that was one of the problems. So I had to make my mom know that we were laboring together for the cause of the gospel in our, in our life as husband and wife and father and mother. Um, so it does, it does bear upon your testimony. But the motive to the duty here, there are others, as I'm saying, but the great motive to the duty is there in verse 7, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Harmony, agreement in prayer, is a powerful principle of the Christian's experience and duty. You know what the apostle, I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, if two of you agree on earth regarding anything which they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father which is in heaven. Prayer offered in full agreement has a particular effectiveness in the heart and mind of God. So if in your home you don't cultivate that kind of unity, if you don't accord your wife the honor that belongs to her, if you don't accord to your wife the, the esteem you have for her, if you don't cultivate unity with your wife, what happens when you pray? You're praying, Lord, do this, please do this. And your wife, what's she going to say? She's going to say, amen. In her heart, is she going to be with you entirely? Well, you see, the way you treat her will have an effect on her ability to say, amen. She's not a robot. And so you ought to cultivate that kind of unity so that when the two of you pray together, there can be agreement. And the Apostle Peter is saying, if you don't do these duties that I'm urging you to do, then you will not have a clear path for your prayers. Peter, Peter is using a military, a military strategy to describe the disunity of prayer when people do not agree. It's a military uh, term, military strategy. When you have someone who is uh, fighting a war, and particularly in on their own turf, what do they do? They cut down trees, they lay them in the road. So your big tank can't just go up the highway, get where it wants to go. They cut down trees and they spread them out and they make it difficult for you to get from point A to point B. And Peter says, that's what happens with your prayers. Your prayers will be hindered if you're not cultivating that kind of unity with your wife, the kind that he has been outlining for us. What prayers, you say, will be hindered? Well, we don't need to make a difference. Uh, prayers we offer up 
private prayers, family prayers, prayers for help and direction. There's a little illustration of it in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 where Paul says he was trying to come to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered him. Same word. Peter saying, when a Christian husband does not treat his wife with the appropriate esteem and honor as a Christian, it creates disharmony and makes prayer ineffective. Disharmony sets up a roadblock to prayer, which God requires to be removed before prayer can be effectively engaged in. That's what the teaching of 1 Peter 3, 7 has as motivation. Well, that's the two duties and the motive. Sensitive thought fulfillment, fulfillment of this normal connubial duties. Peculiar esteem, which a believing husband ought to convey to his believing wife. And the motive to the duty, a clear path for our prayers to heaven. Now, a couple of things by way of application. A couple of things for us, dear brethren. This passage maintains mandates. Mandates a separate residence for a Christian family where they are to live harmoniously, a separate residence for a Christian family. They have to have their own residence. Now you get this all the way back in the creation ordinance of marriage. Some people ignore this entirely, but this is what God says when he made Adam and Eve. And there was the first perfect, maybe uh, the next to the last perfect marriage. The marriage of the Lamb is coming up. But in the first perfect marriage, the only perfect marriage in Scripture, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, one new independent unit, social unit, one family, one residence. They have to have their own residence. A husband is not to have a tentative attachment to his wife and a primary attachment to his mother. That is not biblical. And it is fraught with danger. It is a great danger, a great error to live with in-laws. Lots of people do it. And I know sometimes people say, well, we can't afford to live on our own. But, you know, the... the uh, the Chinese picture for war, I'm told, is two women under one roof. And all you have to do is look at Jacob and his two wives and see what happened with two women supposedly equals under one roof. It's a very dangerous thing. Beware, then, of making expedience for a longer time, I would say for any time, to live under the roof of your parents. Peter says you're to dwell with your wife, your own wife, in your own place. This mandates a separate residence for a Christian family. Beware of job situations which require so much travel and time away from the family as fractures the family. I have in my mind a man with red hair. He was a personal friend. We had a lot of fellowship together. We played basketball together, and then he had to go away from medical training, and he left his wife in New Jersey, 
and went to another country where he became entangled with another woman and destroyed his marriage. Beware of being separated for any lengthy period of time. I'm not saying how much, so I'm not making a rule, but I am saying you need to beware of it. God's general design for the Christian marriage is a one man, one woman living together. Living together. Beware of anything that fractures that pattern. Also, make the home a place of affectionate harmony. Affectionate harmony. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But my second application is this. For you Christian husbands, be studious, thoughtful, and active to know, help, and honor your wife. It will often involve sacrifices on the, on the part of the man. I'm thinking of two men. I can, I can, I can tell you their names. Pastor Jeff Smith. I've, I've talked to him about something that I needed him to be involved with. And he would tell me, I'm sorry, I have to help my wife. I respect that. I applaud that. But the man does not allow his wife to be pushed off on the side. He's, he cares about helping her in her areas of need. Pastor Carlson's another one. Talked to him recently about a matter. And again, he told me, I can only spend a couple minutes on the phone because I have to go help Karen. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that example. And a Christian husband ought to be studious, thoughtful, to know, help, and honor his wife. Now, here's where I want to touch on uh, men who were married to a woman who is unconverted. That's actually the, the big text in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll have to wait till we get there. Who knows when that will be. Lord willing, we will. But here's what I want you to think about. If you're married to an unconverted woman, some, some of these things apply to that relationship. Some of that, you're, you're still to live with her according to knowledge. You still need to know your wife and understand your wife as much as you can. You still need to consider her in her inherent weakness. You are especially to love her and give her security and honor in every way that you can. And pray for her openly. Pray for your children openly. Pray for them. Make it, you know, it's easy to be uh, for wives, children to be offended if you tell them, uh, preach the gospel to them directly, which you ought to do anyway. But huh, I find that people have a hard time objecting that you pray for them, pray for her openly. Well, one other, one other thing I'll, I'll mention and then I'll be done is the vital importance of short accounts between praying people, short accounts. What do I mean? I mean that we're sinners and there will be offenses. And when we have offenses, we need to take the first opportunity to make them right. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Whether it's your fault, as many times Christian husbands, it will be our fault. Sometimes it will be our wife's fault. Keep short accounts. Deal with offenses as quickly as possible. You know what the Bible says. 
Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And that's a vital principle for a Christian marriage. Why? For the glory of God, for the progress of the gospel, for the testimony of godliness, and for effective prayer. I think that's one of the things that really ought to settle upon the hearts of a Christian man. My prayers hindered? Well, let me ask you this question. I'm, I'm just about done. Does it matter to you that your prayers are effective? Would you not care? Would you not care? Would you say, well, you know, I pray, and it's I, 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 I try to live the way I, I wish and what pleases me? You're not concerned about prayer? You're not concerned about effective prayer? And I really have to wonder whether or not you're even a Christian. You don't care about your prayers being hindered or your prayers being accepted by God. That's, that's an awful thing. But I trust, dear brethren, that you do care and that God will bless your marriage and bless your prayers, which is what we hope is accomplished by the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you once again and we thank you for your word. Your word is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. By your word, your servant is warned and keeping it is great reward. So we pray that as we began this day, thinking about the word of God and its value to us, we pray that you would take the things that have been declared from uh, your servant Peter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it will have effect upon every one of our lives. Receive our thanks for your presence with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.